0: Welcome everyone to the Parental Compass. I am your host, Bobby Williams. This is a project of family education and support services, and this is a special edition today. I'm excited. This is our first time doing this. We are doing a live broadcast at the Strengthening Families Conference. We have a virtual audience here joining us today. For those of you that don't know the parental compass is a weekly podcast where we speak with parenting experts to get advice that parents can use in their daily lives we've had all types of incredible guests on the show i believe this is episode 110 so there are a lot of topics out there very excited to be here very excited to do this please subscribe to the show on Apple or Spotify, and leave us a review on Apple. That's something that really just helps to get the word out and it means a lot to us. So please, Apple Reviews. Very excited about our guest today, super excited. So our guest today has a PhD in Media Technology from Northwestern University. She is the author of ScreenWise, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive, in a digital world she has written for the new york times the huffington post the wall street journal please welcome dr Deborah heitner
1: hello thanks so much for having me on the parental compass and welcoming me to this conference it's very cool to be here
0: well thanks for taking the time and coming to be here so i'm thrilled to have you let's just start at the very beginning of um Technology for young people are one of the first big milestones, getting a cell phone. When's the right time to get your child the cell phone? What's the definitive age?
1: Well, first of all, I would look at not at both your readiness and their readiness and think about what they might need in terms of communication. If your child is too young to be home alone or even walk to school by themselves, they probably don't need an independent communication device. Uh, so I would look at some of those independence milestones and then look at how independently they're completing tasks like chores and homework. Are they spending time home alone or going out into the community and traveling independently and maybe using transit or riding their bike outside of the neighborhood? That would be maybe a reason to want to be able to communicate with them or to have them need a device that communicates that's not just at home because a lot of kids are texting and using other devices at home to communicate, but that they don't need a phone for that. And then I would also look at how impulsive they are. Are they good at making social decisions? Are they good at letting an adult know when something's more serious going on between peers? Are they prone to intense conflicts with peers? How do they handle all those things? And if you see your kid is maturing in those areas and maybe ready to make some of their own plans without you reaching out to other parents, that would be a time to potentially get them a phone. But I would also plan on working with them on that. So I teach a whole class for parents on this because- I wouldn't go from, you know, no planning to here's your phone kit. I would really work on with them the skills that they're going to need to be successful with the phone. And I would also think very hard about starting off with a phone that just is used for texting initially, that you're not starting with a phone that immediately is being used for three or four different social media accounts, TikTok, and texting. I would start with texting and really work on the texting and then go from there.
0: Totally. Well, I like the touch on the, um, there are important reasons to have a phone, and it doesn't have to be a full-on iPhone to start. Uh, it makes me think about parenting controls, and it seems like parenting controls are just sort of useless because they're going to find a way around them anyway. Am I right in this?
1: I mean, I don't want to say they're totally useless, but in ScreenWise and in all my work, I would really emphasize mentoring over monitoring and using tech to monitor or using that tech to control things is can be partially a solution or a way to potentially mentor, especially if you're talking with your kids about it. What I think doesn't really work is covertly monitoring our kids so they don't know we're there, because then what do you do if you see something that concerns you? And I do think for some kids, even just building, you know, sort of screen time rules that are enforced through tech versus talking and communicating. Is just a a reason for a kid to then learn to be a better hacker. And I mean, the good news is if you have a little hacker in your house, you're going to be in like the really nice assisted living someday because your kid's going to do really well. I mean, we all know, you know, some kid hackers that turned out to be adult CEOs and CTOs. But in the meantime, you know, you're building a wall and they're like, how high is the wall and how many hours is it going to take for me to scale the wall? So I think it's better to communicate about your expectations with tech versus just putting parental controls and hoping for the best. And especially if your hope is for your kid not to see problematic content like pornography, you have to remember that they're going to be around other kids who have devices too, and that some other kid might shove a device in your kid's face and be like, look at this, it's really sick, you know? And so you need to talk with them about the kinds of content you don't want them looking at, not just try to lock down their devices, because that's a very incomplete solution for a number of reasons, right? Um, that said, I think, you know, taking away devices at night so kids can sleep is a great idea and very old school, but may work uh, pretty well. And I do know parents who find that they can like turn off the Wi-Fi at certain times and kind of brick the devices in their homes and they have good success with that. But again, they're not doing that covertly. It's not sneaky. I think when we get into things like spyware, um, it just raises a lot of questions about the relationship between us and our kids. It raises some real parenting challenges. We're going to maybe see things that their friends say that we wish we hadn't seen and we don't know what to do with. So, there are a lot of reasons not to over rely on monitoring devices and, and apps. And then, the, the final reason that I'm skeptical about them is I think it can set parents up to believe that they know more than they do about what's going on with their kids, where we want to be talking with our kids and observing them and see how they're doing. Are they, you know, do they seem hungry for their favorite food? Are they sleeping well at night? um that's a better indicator uh of their mental health than you know spying on their gaming or their texting
0: it seems like trust is a core idea that you're talking about here if you have to have the trust in your child to be responsible enough for the phone and you want them to trust you that you know you're not spying on them or something
1: Absolutely. And again, you don't want to over-rely on on technology to supervise your kid. You need to be talking to them, including about the sticky things that can come up with texting and social media. Like, you know, what are you going to do if this tricky situation comes up? Or or, um, what are you going to do if you're on a group text and everyone says, let's all get in another group text without Bobby and Devorah, and your kid is faced with this like ethical social dilemma? You're not going to, you don't want to catch kids doing the wrong thing. You want to teach them how to do the right thing. And that's conversation. That's going over things that have happened where maybe there are some regrets and thinking about, well, what could you do differently next time? Um, Mentoring is a lot more work than monitoring, but ultimately, if our goal is to raise autonomous young people who make good decisions, uh, mentoring is going to be more successful than monitoring.
0: I think that's, um, you know, in the show, a running theme that comes up is the tougher way is the right way. And a lot of parenting is just about putting in the effort to have those kind of conversations. So I mean, can you give some more examples of what those conversations look like? Like say you have a, a 10 year old, they're getting a phone, they've just started social media or something. What do you what do you talk with them about specifically?
1: Well, I mean, ideally 10-year-olds aren't on social. They might be texting. Ideally, you're supposed to be 13, and that's just because of rules from the tech companies that are basically about protecting kids in terms of data and advertising. Now, if you do want to let your kid lie about their age to get on social before 13, then you do have a bit more of a responsibility, I would say, to supervise. So not using say, tech to supervise, uh, 13, but maybe no. sitting down with them you know, every couple of days or once a week to look at it with them, talking to them about what they're allowed to post and not post. Um because a ten year old would be a fifth grader. So that's that's pretty young. A lot of kids that age do have phones. We know from the Pew Center for Internet and American Life and studies quite a number of fifth graders do have phones. So it's definitely not beyond uh, reality to think about that. I think we we want to talk with them about how to navigate that sort of always on feeling. We want to talk with them about, Giving boundaries to friends, like if the friends say, oh, you have to be on Minecraft later, we're all going to be there, you have to be, you know, on YouTube later, you know, you don't want to miss out, like letting letting the friends know, hey, I'm not allowed to maybe be on a device until after I get my homework done, or I'm not allowed to be on it past, you know, 930 at night or whatever time your family has set. I think that's a really important boundary and it can actually reduce anxiety for kids because they feel like they have to be available all the time, whether it's on a cloud-based game or on their phone. Uh, So that can be an important conversation. A huge conversation is about your own tech and asking your kids if you have any tech habits that they want you to consider working on.
0: Yeah, we're not always the best example. And um, it's hard to detach from your phone. What if your child is coming to you and it's like, well, everyone else has a Snapchat, but you don't feel like they're ready to have Snapchat yet? Part of you might feel guilty there.
1: Well, I think you want to work with them on what the skills are that they need to be to be ready. And I would say any social media might be the same, but maybe you want to start with like one app versus the other. And so say it's Snapchat that your kid wants to start off with. Um, asking them for their own independent judgment about the way other kids are using apps and what they see other people doing, what's fun about Snapchat. A lot of kids want an app like Snapchat mostly for the direct messaging with friends, um, not even so much to like post, but I would definitely ask them some questions about what they're hoping to do with it and also make a plan with them. Like what kind of maturity do you need to see them exhibit before you would let them get it?
0: Yeah, well, that brings up the whole social side of it, too. They could feel like they're missing out on being closer with their friends if they don't have a phone or they don't have an app.
1: A hundred percent. And I think there is a point where kids may sort of, quote unquote, need a phone. Certainly by high school, I think it would be impossible for kids to or very difficult for kids to socialize without access to texting. In middle school, many kids, probably most kids now have phones and certainly by seventh or eighth grade, a lot of kids have phones. Um so I think if you're if you're holding out uh, for various reasons, like if your kid is struggling and you wanna give them more time, you might give them access to a phone, but for a very limited window of time, like say you have a kid who really does struggle with impulsivity or conflicts um, or has been bullied and you're very hesitant about a phone, you could get them a phone that they have very limited access to, but that they could sort of stay in the loop with people. Um, or you could decide you're waiting on that app But, you know, hopefully some of their friends are communicating in other ways and they may need to let friends know, hey, you know, my parents don't want me to have that app or I don't have that app, but this is a way you can reach me. I think the most important thing is, can their friends reach them to at least make plans?
0: You talk about impulsivity and social media is designed to be addictive or that's what they're trying to do with it. And children might be especially prone to that. So that just seems like a real concern.
1: Well, I think it is very sticky. And I think talking with kids about the design um, of apps and letting them know that yeah, these apps and games are rewar- are like, you know, there and to reward us. Like they're they're there to kind of they're they're, they're there to kind of keep us there. And the, the profit in these apps is to keep us there. So looking at something like Snapchat Streaks where If you drop the ball by not returning a streak within 24 hours, you get this like hourglass telling you it's running out and it was very stressful. So when I ask kids about Snapchat streaks, I'm like, why why do you think the app wants you to do this? And they're like, of course, they want us to spend more time there. And I'm like, right. why, Why is that? Well, then they make more money, right? And so the profit models aren't always totally clear. Um, but these apps want to be indispensable. They want to be where you're spending your day. They want to be where you're getting your news. And we know that that's the case. We know like TikTok, you know, for kids and YouTube is like more important sometimes than even Google search, Um, that kids are looking up restaurants and books on TikTok, not just the things we kind of think of. It's not just dance trends.
0: Yeah. Well, and they'll just give you a little notification. If you haven't been, been on in too long, they're like, look what your friend's doing. Or here's a memory from eight years ago or something. And it's like I'm not even trying to think about that right now, but it just sort of it's designed to keep you coming back. And even yeah, and I think
1: talking like- with kids about that is helpful because they can then be skeptical. Something I like to say to kids is, and adults too, is you want to be running your devices. You don't want them to be running you. And it's helpful to kind of remind kids of these kind of t- tricks that the apps will use to bring you back. Because every app does this pretty much. Like even LinkedIn will like pop up in my email and sort of bug me to be like, oh, you have LinkedIn messages. And it turns out the LinkedIn messages are like random people want to link in with you. Like this is not something I need to be interrupted for, but here it is.
0: and it also gives you like a little dopamine hit when you get a bunch of likes but it can make you feel bad too like when someone else gets a ton of likes and you know your post is cooler than theirs
1: (laughs) social comparison is is deeply deeply part of social media and human beings are incredibly vulnerable to wanting feedback and likes and attention we all are And so, when we talk to our kids about it, like, think about why you post. Like, you want to get the likes too. Parents are like, oh, my kid's just posting for attention. I'm like, is anyone on social media for anything else? Like, what else is there on social? Like, of course, you're there for attention.
0: Yeah. Well, and they can like see their friends are doing something. Sometimes you can even see it in real time. Like, why are my friends getting together without me and then posting about it? Like, why wasn't I included? Whereas before you might hear about something afterwards or a few days later, but the real time element changes things.
1: A hundred percent. I have a a recent post, why are my friends hanging out without me? And it's a great question. And when I ask kids how they deal with seeing other people hanging out, because that's pretty much the price of the ticket with social media, like it will happen to you. I I'm really impressed with the ways kids answer that question because I work at schools a lot and kids will say, okay, you can watch a show that you love or reread your favorite book. You can hang out with your pet. You can even hang out with your parents or siblings. And that's a really great answer. And it's really good for parents, especially of tweens and teens, to understand that we might not be our kids A plan for Saturday night anymore, but it's okay to be the B plan. And that's a time to be really gracious. Like if your kid is sitting home from a slumber party or prom or the big game, you know, and other kids are posting, that's a great time for them to put away their phones, not obsess and, you know, let them pick the show, let them pick the meal, like really be gracious. And, and you know, in any other relationship, it wouldn't be great to be the B plan. Like if that was your spouse or your partner or your best friend, I'd say, don't be the B plan. Um, but with your teen or your tween, like it's good to be the B plan and just, again, be very sort of chill about it and, and definitely encourage them to put down their phone because it's so painful to keep watching those pictures pour in. I'm gonna pop into the chat something that I've I've written about this, but I just think it's so important um, you know, that we don't give our kids like, you know, that we we encourage our kids not to keep like. Experiencing and re-experiencing the painful stimuli of seeing things we were left out, we also need to let them know it's not a crisis though. Like this is not the time to call somebody else's mom or dad and say why didn't you invite my kid, right? Like we do need to let kids know that this is sort of the price of the ticket with social media, and to have the self-control to stop looking and and to it's okay to feel bad, but you know we don't want to like sort of go off on the other people or write them and be like why didn't you invite us? Because that's just not going to lead to anything good.
0: Yeah. I mean, it doesn't feel good to have your child suffering, but then it's like, don't tell, don't let your child just instantly text their friends upset either. And it, it makes me think about how social media is a permanent archive. And when you're young, you might post a bunch of stupid stuff that you don't want in your permanent archive. And when you're putting things out there, it's almost like your personal PR. So just putting whatever is the top of your mind isn't always a good idea. But that's something hard to teach, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, in Europe, they have the right to be forgotten for people under 18. So things that you post, you can kind of make them go away in pragmatic terms. When I've talked to people in Europe and the UK, it doesn't really work. Like if you've done something that's really circulated a lot. um, Unfortunately, it's hard to get rid of just like here. But there are technically some laws that protect people there that I think American parents and educators should be fighting for, because just developmentally, I don't think anyone should sort of be known for the rest of their life for some dumb thing they posted when they were 13. Um, Even if they've had a harmful impact, like when we think about cases of hate speech, obviously, I think there should be consequences for that. But, you know, viral shaming probably is not the best consequence. And it's also not the one that helps people move forward and do better in the future. So I think it's really important to think about very carefully when you have an incident in your community of a young person maybe who has a harmful post. Um, now, there are many kids who post stuff that's just stupid and just reflects badly on themselves, like a kid who posts themselves you know, vaping or a kid who posts themselves making a rude gesture that doesn't have the same kind of harmful impact on a community, obviously, as like hate speech. And there, I think, again, the consequence should be limited to what would you do if you caught your kid vaping, not like, let me virally shame this kid in the community and share it with everyone, right? It's like, yes, they've made a mistake. Yes, they've maybe broken a law. Yes, they've done something that's unhealthy and frowned upon um, that they shouldn't do. But like, they're 15 or they're 17. Like, Like, we really also have to find a way that this doesn't sort of stick with them and haunt them forever. And I think as a society, we can get very hung up on kind of making people pay and pay, for their mistakes. And what we need to do, especially with young people and adolescents is find ways for them to move forward. Like what can they do to make it better? What can they do to make restitution if they've caused harm? What can they do if they made a stupid mistake that caused harm to themselves? Um, If they've hurt someone's feelings, how can they try to repair that relationship? Like we really need to find ways to move forward from these things.
0: I think as society, sometimes it's like people like to pile on or young people really like to throw shame. At something, and it's like you can be united in this kind of cyber bullying of someone, which is just so difficult, too. It's like just a lot of pressure to not make a mistake. What do you do if you catch your kid uh vaping or they make something make a post that's inappropriate? What's the next step? Yeah, I mean the think? ideal
1: thing would be to immediately let them know to take it down. Ideally, if you happen to see it before a lot of people have seen it, you know, you are saving your kid from some potential problems. Um it's important for them to know that someone may have seen it and even screenshot and shared. Again, we I think we do want to live in a society where less people are focused on doing that and kind of you know, amplifying people's mistakes that way. So certainly, yes, if I saw my kid, even if, you know, my kid, um, I'll use a very mild example, like say your kid emails their teacher in a way that sounds more irritated than is appropriate or is kind of entitled. And, you know, if you if you find that that's happened even before the teacher corrects it, you could say, you know what, I think it might be good to write to your teacher again and apologize for the tone that you took, right? And like try like, try again and do better. And if I were the teacher in that scenario, um, and I was as a professor, sometimes in a situation of having to be like, try that again, like try that communication attempt again. Um, you know, if a kid has done something more harmful, they may have to, you know, face other consequences. Um, in my new book that's coming out next year, Growing Up in Public, I interviewed families where kids had posted things that were more problematic and potentially very problematic and experienced consequences like, you know, getting suspended from school or other disciplinary consequences. And that's when you just have to kind of face the music and move forward. And you can still move forward from something like that. I would say that, again, I believe that all people can change and get better, but certainly everyone working with young people especially wants to make that opportunity possible, right? That we shouldn't hold someone, I think, again, any person maybe to the worst thing they've ever done, but especially not, you know, like a 16-year-old who, you know, posts a xenophobic meme, for example, about COVID, um, maybe that kid really didn't understand how problematic that meme was. Yes, they've caused harm. Yes, they've amplified a problematic, hurtful, xenophobic message. Um, I'm not saying it's okay, but, um, do we attach that to that person for the rest of their lives? I would say, no, we give them an opportunity to move forward. We give them an opportunity to learn more about the world, about geopolitics, about the reasons sometimes, you know, xenophobic ideas cluster around these things. And we help them understand why they why why they amplified something problematic, and 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 help them move forward and apologize in in the ways that they can to the people that they've hurt by sharing the meme, and then we move forward, right? And then we move forward because we can't stay there forever. And I think that's really really important. And we because when we marginalize kids for those kinds of mistakes, again. We acknowledge that they, they've caused harm, but when we marginalize kids, we can actually push them more in the direction of confirming those problematic beliefs, right? If we don't work with them to find out where does this come from, why did you think that was funny, right? If we just say you're wrong, you're terrible, you're bad, and we don't engage with them, then we haven't really done our work as educators and
0: parents. It's a shame how much social media is getting used for hate. And sometimes hate infiltrates things like memes or popular culture in a way. And, um, you know, there's just a lot of misinformation. I mean, that's why
1: we want to be really aware if our kids are on YouTube or TikTok or Reddit, like, where are they hanging out? Are they in a space that's supportive? Are they in a space that's misogynist, homophobic, or racist? And help them understand that they're allowed to leave situations, too, if you're in a game like a cloud-based game and someone starts dropping you know hate speech or something you can go you don't have to stick around for that
0: yeah i feel like often young people don't feel like they can go or there's this like why didn't you just delete your account or why didn't you just leave and it's like well i didn't want them to think less of me or feel like i'm losing this fight or something it's really hard. Well, you're in a unique space where you get to interview a lot of young people. Are you hearing any consistent themes about what they think about social media or anything that's surprising you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think some kids do feel like it's a lot of emotional labor, just have to like like everyone's pictures. And a lot of kids are on social apps predominantly to text. So they may be posting and thinking about their sort of image or whatever, but a lot of them are there predominantly to text. And if you don't have somebody's phone number, you know, direct messaging them on Instagram or something like that can be very handy. Um so I think we need to be kind of curious about that. I do think a lot of them spend a lot of time on TikTok in particular or YouTube. The algorithm of both are you know, very hard to walk away from. And, and depending on the the topics you're interested in, there are some pretty fascinating videos. I'm not gonna lie. I mean, TikTok, I'm not a huge TikTok person, but when I, I do have a TikTok where I share parenting advice and like sometimes I'll watch other parenting advice, but then I'll get into things like how people organize their space or home decor or um, young adult book talk. And it's fascinating. So if you're like really into like makeup tutorials, for example, or really into, you know, home organization or really into, I don't know, like all kinds of things. Like there's so many um, great videos and the content will just keep you there and suck you in. And so I think kids are aware of how much time they're spending and sometimes feeling a little bit like, okay, I'm going to take this off my phone while I'm focused on maybe my big swim meet or my big AP physics test. I do think kids are, are being more savvy over time about how they're spending time. I also think kids are aware of having a public presence. I interviewed an activist, a school activist in Chicago for the new book and she was saying um that she's very aware that you know like the teachers union in Chicago is following her Twitter and she's like sometimes I just want to be 15 and be like, "Yo, I got a new shirt," you know, or whatever, and I feel very aware that I have this like activist presence and that's what people are following me for, but I also just want to like be a kid. And so we were kind of talking about that challenge of like, how do you post for these different audiences? And I think a lot of our young people are having to think about this in ways that we never did.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, you touched on a few things that are interesting to me. One of them is YouTube. And it's like with television, you could at least sort of control what they're watching. But with YouTube, something inappropriate is just a click away, or maybe they're looking for something inappropriate.
1: Absolutely. I mean there's so much content out there that I wouldn't even want to see as an adult, let alone want, you know, your 8-year-old or even your 16-year-old to see. So I think it's really important that we talk with kids about that and especially with things like pornography that we're pretty direct about what the problems are with the industry and with the images it creates. We can definitely talk with kids about other kinds of problematic content. I think in the last few years we've all seen a lot of violence, for example, and sometimes specifically violence directed at people of color. And while it may be important to document what's happening, we also have to think about our souls and like, what does it mean to watch someone like George Floyd get killed? Like, is that something we'd want our children to watch? We need to know that it happened. We need to stand up and say, this is wrong, right? And, and be involved in conversations around things like Black Lives Matter. But does that mean we need to watch the video? And I think it's a really important thing to think about, like so much really explicit, terrible stuff is available. There's, videos of like close range conflict in the Ukraine and other places. Like we don't need our kids or ourselves to to see that. Um, you know, unless you're like a UN peacekeeper and it's sort of like your job, for example, to watch that the rest of us luckily don't have to. And I think it's really important that we ask ourselves, like, what do I want to take into my mind? What, you know, what can I live with that won't traumatize me? And that's why a lot of times, you know, if we, if we are scrolling, you know, Twitter or something, um, it might say like, Hey, maybe, you know, be aware there's content warnings. I think that's really important. Um, And we need to talk with our kids about the effects of viewing content that is troubling in these different ways and obviously like violence and pornography although there's some overlap there are also very different in some ways um, and then there are even other kinds of content just in in places like Reddit or Quora um, that are problematic in other ways and so Even the comments section, like on YouTube, for example, even the comments can get pretty toxic. So like, do you want your 11 year old putting themselves out there on a YouTube channel? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But if you do let them do it, maybe comments should be turned off. Or maybe if comments are turned on, you want to be checking those comments every week with them and making sure they're not getting hateful comments that they're kind of internalizing, right? Because that's very young to deal with, you know, even strangers on the internet, unfortunately can be very unkind.
0: Yeah, everyone can be so mean and there's no accountability for it. I think with that George Floyd video, it kind of traumatized the country. And that was part of what was important about it. But then it's definitely like, you don't want your 11-year-old to see that too.
1: Right. And that's the thing is, I mean, I think, again, I'm not saying we don't want to document things that are happening, but I, I think it's very important that our children aren't overexposed to that. And I think there are reasons to really protect kids from that kind of um video, even if we know that it happened and that it's important that it was documented. So I mean, these are things we're just living with in the cell phone generation where there's so many video cameras out there and so many more things are going to be documented in our world.
0: And more things just to wrestle with and try to really think about like media is not what it was, or it's a very different landscape. Uh, Another thing you touched on that was really interesting or resonated with me is talking with teachers so i lead a youth music organization and interact with a lot of youth and it's like sometimes basic etiquette just seems lost or you know they're reaching out after work hours and it's like stop doing that
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. right and i think that that just having those boundaries is really important. Recognizing that if you write to your teacher or your professor in the middle of the night, they're not going to write back and that's okay. Recognizing that you can tell your friends or even your boyfriend or girlfriend not to text you in the middle of the night. Recognizing that it's okay to turn off your phone, that we all don't need to be so accessible. And some of that, I think, especially in the pandemic with so many of us working from home, you know, any boundaries we may have had with work and life have been so blurry. And we need to maybe reestablish that because there's a lot of data that shows we're more product productive as employees and workers if we don't have 24/7 access to one another, and that we need to not use sort of multiple time zones or 24/7 access or having devices at home as a reason to constantly be on email. Um, I really love uh, you know some of the work around having a tech sabbath. Um, Tiffany Schlain's book 24/6 is a really good example of like talking about what happens if you unplug one day a week. In my family, we don't even unplug for one full day a week, but even if we can have like a few unplugged meals and evenings here and there, that's really good for us. Um, So finding that unplugged time as a family, again, even if it's just like one dinner or brunch a week to start with and like like beyond that, like the meal plus maybe a board game or, you know, or even if you can take your family TV time and make sure people aren't using other devices during that time and not double screening, anything we can do to kind of bring ourselves a little bit more into the present moment and back together is great.
0: I think a challenge with kids is they can all keep tabs on each other. So it's like, well, I saw something on your stories, but you haven't hit me back yet, but I know you have your phone on you. Or it's almost like it's too much information for everyone. Exactly. Yeah. Well, boundaries seem really important. What do you think the overall impact of all this technology is having on youth? Like, Is this a more anxious generation for all these phones?
1: Uh, I don't believe that phones are necessarily the cause of anxiety. I'm very skeptical about people who really want to put this all on the phones, because I think for some kids, the communities that they find that support them in spaces like Discord, whether it's kids who identify as LGBTQ, kids who identify as neurodiverse, I think there's a lot of great stuff, actually, and great community for kids online um, so I think it's, it's a balance, you know, can, can phones and social media add stress? Absolutely. But I think we need to look at the bigger picture of, you know, rising incidents of hate crimes, um, laws that are, are harmful to trans kids and their families, um, environmental destruction, and just a lot of really difficult things going on in our society right now. Um, kids being less certain about their future economically and, and concerns about college admissions. We're looking at potentially losing affirmative action, um, which will be a terrible blow, I think, to a move toward a more equitable and just society. So we have a lot of work to do. And I think uh, if I were a kid, um, you know, (laughs) And the kids I talk to seem more stressed about some of these other things and their phone may be where they're learning about those things, but I don't think we can blame the phone, right? Or blame social media completely. I mean, for individual kids at times, can can these things like, like Instagram and social comparison add to stress about things like body image? Absolutely. So I'm not saying there's no additional stress for anyone ever, but overall, the kind of mental health stuff that we're seeing with kids, the um overwhelming increases uh, in mental health issues i think is a bunch of things i think first of all it's better reported um i think there i think we've you know the pandemic obviously was a tremendous blow and losing access to school and school communities um my own son was out of school for 18 months many kids in this country were essentially out of school for a year or a year and a half it's a tremendous loss of access to food services um you know a caring community uh, we're still definitely in a recovery mode from that, and so I think kids are struggling there. And I also think we're diagnosing kids more, which is a good thing. So when I was growing up, and you know, I started high school in 1989, there was a smoking room. Kids did a there's there was definitely more substance abuse, and I'm I'm that's that's documented. Like the research shows that kids were smoking cigarettes more, drinking more alcohol, using more illegal drugs um, in those years. And so what we see now is instead of maybe smoking cigarettes, kids are going to a psychiatrist and and getting medicated for anxiety. Is that worse? I don't think that's necessarily worse, but that's going to show as anxiety is up. Well, if kids in the past were, you know, it was more socially acceptable for kids to self-medicate. Was that better? Right. So I think there's a bunch of different things going on. I think there's more diagnosis. I think there is more um, trauma and harm going on um, because of the pandemic and because of other social forces. And I think also the conversation around young people and mental health has changed. So I think blaming it on kids and phones is, is really, unfortunately like too simple. Like if only it were just, you know, iPhones and we could just take them away or just stop using Instagram and we would all feel so much better. But I don't think that that is the case.
0: It's like the fault of the world more so than just the phones and it's so wild to think about uh, a smoker's room at a high school that seems just like a foreign idea it's like wow time yeah,
1: but crazy. not to people my age. <laughs> I'm 47. I remember them well um the cafeteria in my college was so smoky we couldn't see the ceiling
0: mm. even like getting rid of smoker sections in restaurants that was such a bad idea because it's like the smoke doesn't know what section, you know.
1: I know. I mean, as a non-smoker and kind of with allergies, of course I'm relieved, but um, yeah. I mean, I think I just remember those days of even going out to see a concert and coming home smelling of smoke. But the fact is that's a huge societal change that we were able to make relatively quickly from a time, you know, 20, 30 years ago where many, many places allowed smoking to almost completely not. And that tells me we can make other changes as a society, by the way, like that we are capable you know, like I think about how quickly we got rid of, you know, smoking, um, and and dramatically reduced its acceptability. I'm like, wow, it would be amazing if we could do that with like guns or something else. <laughs> um, because yeah, I remember someone saying in the comments. I remember when smoking in the hospital was okay. When I started grad school, I saw people smoking in the library. Like now, you can't imagine somebody lighting up in the library. So maybe we can look at other things in society and not feel as hopeless that those things could change. around public health.
0: How do you not feel hopeless as an adult? Like, are there communities to support you in dealing with these issues? Or what what do you do there?
1: Well, I think parents especially can find community with other parents. I think we have to be careful about what we disclose in our kids in those communities, especially online communities. And we should be always mindful of our kids' privacy in what we share. But I think that is a place to get support, whether you're raising little kids or teenagers. Um, There's some great online places to get support and also just Easier texting with friends and family may help, especially if you have family maybe far away, like your own siblings or cousins or other people that you trust, close friends, raising kids. Um, I do think the accessibility of therapy, I know in some communities it's still hard to access therapy, but telehealth is making therapy more accessible for more people, and I think that is a good thing. Um, So there are things that make me hopeful. And seeing young activists, you know, the the activists I interviewed in Chicago, in Rhode Island, and other places – um, who are working on getting police out of schools? Who are working to make social media a better place? There are some young people uh, working on that. There's some um, I can I can give you for the show notes later some names of young people who are really working um, against bullying and cyberbullying. There's a there's a lot of good hopeful things going on in our world, um, as well as a lot of things that you know are scary. So it really depends what you're tuning into in the moment.
0: It's wild how much social media can do or it seems like they're listening to my conversations and advertising to me. Um, You talk about sleep and obviously one of the most important things in life is going to sleep. And people always say like, well, don't bring your cell phone into your bedroom. But I'll be honest, even if I know that's bad for me, I'm doing it anyway. And I think a lot of people um still bring their cell phones to bed with them just on the bedside table. Are there any half measures for this? Or is it all or nothing? Or how do you I think mean ideally
1: this? for kids, you just wouldn't have a connected device in the room overnight. And then I would start to give them more practice with self-regulating, I don't know, maybe senior year of high school, like before they leave home, try to get them to put it on airplane mode. If your kid says they need it as an alarm clock, you can definitely get them another alarm clock. If you can afford a smartphone plan, you can probably afford a $10 you know, alarm clock at Target or, you know, someplace like that just wakes you up that doesn't do other things. I will admit that it's hard. Like in my own family, we've struggled to find a music device that you can't also text on and do 50 other things on because we've wanted that for our own kid. And it can be hard to find uh, in these, like in these complicated tech times, everything does everything, right? It's hard to find a device that just plays music. Um, So I think that's That's important. I think modeling good sleep hygiene, not doing the most overstimulating things right before bed. Like if you're going to do a tech thing before bed, it might be, you know, watching a TV show with your family across the room versus having it right up in your face. Um, where the light's closer to your eyes, but also really thinking about not doing TikTok or gaming or social media before bed or work email, if that stresses you out, looking at your grading app. If you're a high school or college kid who gets stressed about your grades, don't look at your grades right before bed. Like Those kinds of things versus like watching a show or listening to a podcast might work for you before bed. Even if you're giving your kids books to read in bed, I would, I would say if you can do a, a regular book for, with a little light versus a a Kindle where you may, or, or other kind of e-reader, you know, where you may be tempted to then do other things on it. That might be better. Um, sometimes less is more, you know, sometimes if you can just go with the analog book, that's going to be a better solution to falling asleep. And if your kids are coming in bed with you on the weekend and they have to like climb over like a nest of chargers, we're teaching them that what humans do is we snuggle up at night with our cozy devices. And we may not want to give our kids that message.
0: Yeah, it's so hard to be a good example, because I think a lot of people are just plugged into their phones. What are things parents should be thinking about as far as trying to be a better example? Like, are there common mistakes or issues that parents should think about and work on?
1: Oh 100%. I mean, I think all of us could do better and I think ask your kids that too like what are the tech habits I could work on but we don't want to be texting or on our computers very much when we're with our kids. We want to I try to close my laptop or put my phone away so I can really listen to my son. We don't want to be texting and driving in front of our kids or at all. Um there's a bunch of things. A lot of times our kids feel like we post about them without asking permission. That's a huge violation of boundaries and if we can remember to ask permission, we're setting them up to then remember to ask their friends for permission and to know that it's okay to have that boundary with one another. So that's a really important thing we can do as a family. That's really respectful. And we want them to do it with us as well. I don't want my kid posting me without permission. I don't want him posting, you know, friends without permission. If you have kids, multiple kids, you don't want them posting siblings without permission. And so it's really important. And that, that, dialogue around consent extends to so much in our world in digital and beyond. You know, if someone asks me for someone else's phone number, I check with that person before I give out their phone number or their information. I don't just assume that it's something I can give away.
0: Can a five-year-old really give permission to be on social media? It seems like they... Aren't in a position to really say one way or the other. How do you feel about that?
1: Ideally, at seven is when I would say you would start asking. Unless your kid's saying no, 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 don't take my picture. But I think for under seven, you know, you would you can just think about will my think about I'm taking this picture now, but how will my kid feel when they're a super self conscious 15 year old? How will they feel when they're 30, running for an important you know up for an important job? Like if this picture is out there, if this post about them is out there. And I can't take it back. How will I feel? And if in doubt, don't share it out. Share it within the family. Share it on a more lockdown space. You know, Mark Zuckerberg doesn't have to own your family album. Uh, I think that's a really important boundary that we can have as families that if in doubt, we don't share it out. And unfortunately, if they're in a bathing suit or not a lot of clothes, I wouldn't share it out because um, we know that photos of kids get misused um, even in ways that we wouldn't imagine or expect.
0: We're going to get into some audience questions and comments. But this wraps up this episode of the Parental Compass. Dr. DeVore, thank you for being here today.
1: Thank you so much. And again, I can share some things in the show notes that are further resources and reading. Um, and I'm I'm really enjoying this conversation. And I'm thinking of other people you might want to talk to you as well about some of these other topics. So I'll give you some, some friends' names.
0: We always appreciate guest recommendations. Uh, tell us your website, too.
1: My website is devorahheitner.com, D-E-V-O-R-A-H-H-E-I-T-N-E-R. And I have a sub stack at Substack.com where you can sign up and get my hopefully helpful wisdom every few weeks uh, about kids growing up in the digital age and things in my research, as well as other people's articles and books that I come across that I think are smart and helpful.
0: Dr. Devorah Heitner. Thank you for being here with us. First live episode. If you liked that, let us know, and maybe we'll do it again sometime. This has been the Parental Compass by Family Education and Support Services. I'm Bobby Williams. We'll see you next week. Peace.